Okay, well, if you have your Bible with you, uh, please open up to the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts, chapter 17. Now, over the last few years, um, I've spoken to quite a number of people about God. Uh, And one thing that I've discovered, generally speaking, is that most people tend to believe that there is a God of some sort out there. Uh, But I've also discovered that when you talk uh, to those people uh, and you ask them about their belief in a God, a a common explanation goes something like this. Uh, People will say, well, yes, I I believe that there is some uh, God out there somewhere, but I don't know, you know, who or what it is or where he is. And I I don't think we can really know anything uh, for sure. In other words, they have this idea that there's a God out there that's some kind of impersonal uh, essence or force who's not really interested in the things of this world, who's not really interested in uh, the things uh, concerning my life. Uh, But they always tend to sort of round off the explanation with something like, but you know, I, I think I'm a pretty good person, so whatever happens, I think I'll be okay in the end. Now, I don't know if any of you have encountered anybody... Uh, who uh, uh, says uh, that, I found in my own experience that it's actually very common. Now, rewind some 2,000 years, all the way back to first century Athens, which is the subject of our text uh, today. Uh, Athens was the intellectual capital of the ancient world. It was the most educated, uh, most intelligent Uh, city contained the most educated uh, people in really all of the ancient uh, world Uh, and in spite of the fact that the people of Athens were polytheists that is that they believed in many different gods um, they had thousands of temples and statues and uh, all sorts to those gods Uh, secular history as well as our passage today shows us that the Athenians had made altars to what they referred to as the unknown God. The unknown God. And like many people today, those Athenians, uh, in spite of their great uh, education and uh, supreme intellect, and despite the fact that they acknowledged that gods existed uh, and they were out there somewhere... Uh, they believed that there were some things about God that even their knowledge couldn't attain. There were some things about God that simply could not be known. There was uh, elements of truth that there was no way to know for sure. And of course, like many people today, the Athenians were absolutely wrong in their beliefs. Uh, the truth of Scripture, of course, is that God can be known and he can be known because he wants to be known and has revealed himself to this world he has revealed himself through creation the scripture tells us he has revealed himself through his word uh, and ultimately he has revealed himself uh, through the person of his son jesus christ Uh, but oftentimes the reality is is that man is content to be ignorant concerning God. Uh, A lot of times, frankly, man just does not want to know God. Uh, And the reason for that is because to accept that there is a personal creator God who has revealed himself and who can be known uh, is to accept the fact that I am accountable to him and I am responsible to do what I need to do in order to come into a relationship with him. And frankly, people do not want a God telling them what to do. If there's a God, people think, I'd much prefer a God out there who sort of fits in with my ideas and fits in with what I believe and a God who will sort of ratify the things that I want to do and the things that I believe certainly don't want a God who's going to make demands on me and my life and a God who's going to disagree with the way I think 
about things. There is a word for that attitude, by the way, and it's called idolatry. And we'll talk a little bit about that um, as we continue. But here in our passage today, in Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, Paul uh, gets the opportunity to preach the gospel in this city of Athens to some of the most brilliant minds in the ancient world. And as he does, he fills in the gaps in their knowledge. He fills in their ignorance about God, explaining to them the truth about the God by their own admission that they do not know. That he is the one true God, the true and the living God, the God who is the creator of all things and the God who is the judge of all men. That is the bookend of Paul's address to the Athenians. Uh, and so I've entitled our message uh, today here in Acts chapter 17, Getting to Know the Unknown God. Uh, and you'll see why as we go through. Our passage is Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 16, and Lord willing, we'll get down to the end of the chapter, verse 34, today. So let's read Acts chapter 17, I'll begin in verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysus 
and the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask uh, now as we have your word open before us that you would bless your word to our hearts by your spirit that you would grant us understanding. Uh, Lord, that we may grow in the knowledge of you. Uh, and so, Lord, we ask uh, now that you uh, would do a, a great and a mighty work in each and every one of our hearts. Instruct us in righteousness. Uh, Lord, help us to grow and in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So we thank you and we praise you as we ask for your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in Acts chapter 17, we're following Paul, uh, Silas and Timothy on Paul's second missionary journey. Uh, at the start of chapter 17, he was in the Greek city of Thessalonica, there in the northeastern part of Greece, the area of Macedonia. Uh, and there in Thessalonica, you'll record, G, uh, Paul preached the message of the gospel. He preached Christ and him crucified to the people of Thessalonica. There were some who believed, but many did not. And not only did they not believe, but they gathered an angry mob and drove Paul out of the city. Uh, so Paul went on to Berea. And you'll remember in Berea, the Bereans searched the scriptures daily uh, to see if the things that Paul was telling them uh, were true. And a great many people believed uh, in Berea because they were a lot more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. Uh, but a group of people from Thessalonica showed up in Berea, uh, chased Paul all the way there, and they tried to get Paul in Berea. And so Paul uh, went away by night. He jumped on a ship and sailed about 125 miles south all the way to the city of Athens. Uh, he left uh, Silas and Timothy, his traveling partners, behind, uh, no doubt to do uh, more discipleship uh, with the new believers in Berea. Uh, but by the time he got to Athens, he called for uh, Silas and Timothy to join him. Uh, and that is where we pick up the text in verse 16. Now, our passage dealing with Paul in Athens, it, it's quite a long one. There's uh, an extraordinarily large amount uh, of stuff we could talk about uh, here in this passage. It's an absolutely fascinating passage culturally, historically, uh, as well as spiritually. Uh, but there are four uh, things for us to notice here that will help us guide us through this passage. Four things concerning Paul's ministry in the city of Athens. Okay, the first thing to notice is what Paul saw when he arrived in Athens. What Paul saw. Take a look at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, that was Silas and Timothy, who he'd left behind in Berea, while he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. And so what did Paul see when he arrived in Athens? He saw that the city was given over to idols. Now we need to uh, paint the picture here uh, of what Paul would have experienced when he arrived in the city of Athens. Athens, of course, was one of the great cities of the ancient world. It was founded somewhere between 800 and 1,000 years before Christ. It was famous for its literature, going all the way back to uh, Homer and the Homeric uh, poems. It was famous for its art, for its architecture, for its culture, for its democracy. Uh, and perhaps above all, the city of Athens was famous for its philosophers. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. They lived and worked and studied and taught in the city of Athens in around the 300s uh, BC. Plato's world-famous school of philosophy was located uh, in Athens. And so the city had really an unrivaled history uh, of uh, intellectual uh, prowess. It was very much the intellectual capital of the ancient world. 
now, by the time Paul got there, around about 45, 50 AD, somewhere in there, uh, Athens was well past its glory days. Uh, Plato's school of philosophy had closed uh, about 100 years before. Uh, the Greek Empire, which peaked in around the 300s with Alexander the Great, had been overthrown by the Romans. Uh, but Athens was still a very impressive city. It's still a very impressive city today with its buildings, its architecture, its culture, history, and so on and so forth. And in Paul's day, it still had a proud intellectual independence. It was a free city in the Roman Empire. That means it was self-governing. It was independent uh, in the Roman Empire. Uh, and so there is no doubt that the Apostle Paul uh, would have grown up knowing a great deal about the city of Athens. Uh, and so Paul is visiting Athens now for the very first time in his life. Incidentally, it will be the last time Paul visits Athens as well. Uh, and I imagine that Paul, when he arrived in Athens, would have been uh, initially like anybody else, uh, in awe of what an amazing city uh, Athens was. And uh, and I don't know if anyone has been to Athens. Has anyone been uh, to Athens? I've not. I want to go uh, one day. Uh, you'll recognize a, a few of these sites uh, in Athens. I'm going to show you. Now, that's uh, uh, the city of Athens, or at least part of it. Uh, and one of the most famous areas of the city of Athens is this green area of trees, which is quite a large area, that's the Agora. Uh, not much going on there, but back in Paul's day, uh, that was the marketplace. Uh, it was the public square. And this is an artist's impression of what it would have looked like. Uh, the real cultural center uh, of the city of Athens, where there were great works of art, great sculptures on display. There were discussions by philosophers and all sorts. It was the, the real hub, lots to see, sort of like museums, if you will, and all sorts. It would have been a great place uh, to visit. Uh, and as well as the Agora, there was the Acropolis, uh, the high point of the city of Athens. Uh, you'll see which, that's a modern day photo, of course. And on top of the Acropolis, right there, is the Parthenon, uh, which was the temple uh, of Athena, the patron of Athens and the Greek goddess of wisdom. And uh, there it is, modern day today. Uh, obviously, it's all kind of in ruins today. But again, if you look at an artist's impression, uh, it was quite a spectacular uh, temple, one of many, many temples throughout Athens with a great statue of Athena uh, there on the top. Now, I also want you to notice uh, this little temple down here and this little uh, sort of flat area in the shadow uh, of the Acropolis. And we'll talk about that uh, a little bit later. But Athens was just an incredible uh, city. So many things to see, so much history. Uh, so much culture. It's sort of like going to London, you know. If you go to London, or even Oxford for that matter. Of course, my brothers live in Oxford, and I always love going to Oxford. So much church history in Oxford. You know, you walk down Broad Street, and there's uh, a brick cross in the road where uh, the Oxford martyrs were martyred in the 1500s. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, mart uh, burnt them at the stake uh, for a heresy because they believed salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And you can stand on the very spot where 500 years ago uh, these men were burnt at the stake uh, for the sake of the gospel. You know, and it's, it's one of those things, it's quite overwhelming, you know, to, to, to just sort of see the history. And in this place, all those years ago, these amazing things happened. And I imagine all these thoughts were going through Paul's mind as he entered into the city uh, of uh, Athens. But what are we told that Paul saw when he came to Athens? What was the one thing above all that occupied his mind when he came into the city? According to verse 16, it was the fact that the city was given over to idols. That word given over literally means to be submerged under. It was overrun by idols. There was idols everywhere. There was temples, there was statues, there was altars. Everywhere you looked, the place was covered in idols. Now, of course, the Greeks, uh, one thing the Greeks were famous for were their gods uh, in Greek mythology, going all the way back to the Homeric poems, the Iliad and, uh, and the Odyssey. 
uh, and you have Zeus, the, the god of land, uh, Poseidon, the, the god of the sea, Hades, the god of the underworld, and they all married gods as their wives, and they had kids and produced more gods. Uh, and so they had all these gods, gods for everything. Um, and and so, so there were gods everywhere. And so everywhere you looked, there were shrines and temples and statues uh, to all the multitude of gods uh, that the Greeks had in those days. In fact, one historian says uh, that there were more gods in Athens than in all the rest of the country. Uh, and the Roman satirist hardly exaggerates, the historian says, when he says that it was easier to find a god there than a man. Uh, another historian says there were at least 30,000 idols all over the temple. And so when Paul went in, these things were everywhere. They were absolutely everywhere. And that was the one thing above all in a city of great magnificence, in a city of great beauty, incredible architecture, and so on and so forth. Uh, but all of that beauty, all of that impressive architecture, none of it impressed Paul because it was all dedicated to false gods. And it didn't matter how beautiful it was, it didn't matter how you know, amazing it was to look at, if it wasn't built for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Apostle Paul was greatly grieved in his spirit. And so what did Paul see when he came into Athens? Well, he saw a city literally submerged in idolatry. And that brings us to the second thing we notice. Again, it's in verse 16. And that is what Paul felt. What Paul felt when he saw this city submerged in idols. In verse 16, it says his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. How did Paul feel? His spirit was provoked within him. That word provoked means literally to incite or to irritate or to arouse anger. It was actually a word used, medically speaking, for somebody who was having a seizure or a fit. And it's in the perfect tense, so it means a continued, uh, settled state uh, of, of aroused anger in his spirit at the idolatry that was all around. Now, that word provoked is an interesting word because it's only used one other time in all of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, where we're told that love is not provoked. Love is not provoked. Uh, and here we read that Paul was provoked in his spirit. Uh, and so was Paul being unloving toward the city of Athens by the, the provocation that was there in his spirit? Was he in sin that this provocation within was in his spirit? And the answer, I think, is no. Because there is such a thing as righteous anger. And what is very interesting, uh, just, just thinking around it here, um, this was something that took place within Paul's spirit. It wasn't spoken out loud. There was nobody else around. No, nobody else knew that Paul was experiencing uh, this uh, anger within his spirit. Uh, and so presumably Paul later told Luke that this is what happened to him. Uh, and what's interesting is that word provoked in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, which Paul would have been very familiar with and which was probably the common uh, Old Testament that was, that was used uh, in the uh, first century. That same word provoked was used multiple times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in referring to God being provoked by the children of Israel when they turned to idolatry. For example, in Isaiah 65, verses 2 and 3, God said, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts, a people who provoke me to anger continually to my face. It's the words of the Lord concerning uh, the children of Israel, uh, the nation of Israel, because they turned away from him to idolatry. Uh, and so here, Paul is experiencing this anger and this grief inwardly in his heart. Inwardly, and it's the same anger and grief God is said to have for the very same reason. Because of the idolatry that existed before him. And it was a provocation, it was a jealousy, if you will, 
for the glory of God. You see, the idea here is that God and God alone is the creator and the redeemer, and God and God alone is worthy of our worship. And when that worship is given to something else or someone else other than God, God himself is jealous. He is provoked. Paul was provoked when he saw it. And we ought to be provoked in the same way. But that provocation, that righteous indignation in our spirits should always motivate us to righteous action. Righteous indignation should always lead to righteous action. And that's the third thing we see in our text. We've seen uh, what Paul saw, a city submerged in idolatry. We've seen what Paul felt, a great provocation in his spirit at all the idolatry. And that provocation in his spirit moved Paul to action. The third thing we see then is what Paul did. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? And others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And so what did Paul do in Athens? Well, he reasoned with the people both in the synagogue and in the public square, preaching to them Jesus and the resurrection. In other words, Paul was so impacted by a city submerged in idolatry, so lost in their worship of false gods, that Paul was immediately compelled to preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ to the people of Athens. And according to verse 17, he started in the synagogue, as was his uh, custom, to the Jews and the, the God-fearing Gentiles that were there. Uh, but Luke focuses on what happened in the marketplace, in the public square, in the agora. Because there were those who happened to be there, according to verse 18, who were philosophers. Now these men were probably quite different to the men Paul had been used to talking to on his missionary journey so far. These were the real intellectuals of the day. Uh, these were the intellectual elite, uh, really, of all the Roman Empire. And particularly, Luke points out, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers who Paul uh, encountered. Now a philosopher, of course, uh, philo, love, Sophia, wisdom, the love of wisdom, uh, philosophy, uh, the love of wisdom, a philosopher is one who is given to the pursuit of wisdom, the pursuit of uh, learning uh, and wisdom. And Luke specifically mentions the Epicureans and the, the Stoics. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics, those were the two main branches of uh, Greek uh, philosophy for probably the couple of hundred years prior to Paul going to Athens. Uh, they were both concerned with the, the secret or the key to happiness in life, but they disagreed completely about how that happiness would to be Achieved. Now, the Epicureans, they followed the teaching of the Greek philosopher Epicurus. He died 270 years before Christ. And they believed that the chief goal of life, the chief way, if you like, to happiness in life, was to pursue pleasure. Now, not in the hedonistic sense of just, you know, following all your base uh, desires. Uh, they understood pleasure to be simply the absence of pain in the body and the absence of trouble in the mind. Uh, and so the Epicureans, they emphasized finding pleasure in the simple things of life, uh, in the necessities of life, in food and in drink. They believed, on, uh, believed in seeking to minimize pain, uh, to minimize the bad desires that you would have that would only lead uh, to, to sort of anguish and struggle, and particularly minimizing uh, the fear and eliminating the fear of death. Uh, the Epicureans, they were polytheists, they believed in the existence of many gods, but their understanding of the gods was that they were so far away and so distant and had no interest in human life that there was no point in sacrificing or praying to the gods. It was a total waste of time. They didn't believe in a creator 
God. They believed the universe came about by just sort of random chance, and they certainly didn't believe in a God who would inflict judgment uh, upon men. Finally, they didn't believe in life after death. Uh, one of the famous epitaphs of the Epicureans that would often appear on gravestones uh, in the years before Jesus uh, said this, I was not, I was, I am not, I do not care. Uh, in other words, I, I didn't exist, then I existed, and then I lived, and then I died, so what? Uh, the whole purpose of life, really, in the meantime, while you're alive, is just simply to pursue pleasure, pursue the absence of pain, pursue the absence of trouble, and live a happy life. So that was the Epicureans. Incidentally, the word Epicurean has kind of made it into our language today. There's actually a restaurant in the Celtic Manor Hotel called the Epicure Restaurant. Uh, and the word Epicure means uh, a love of fine food and drink. And it's kind of taken from the, the Epicureans uh, back in uh, uh, ancient Greece. Uh, and then there was the Stoics. Now, that's a word we use today as well, the Stoics. They followed the teachings of a man named Zeno. He died 265 years before Christ. And they too believed in, in, in the, the gods, but they had a more pantheistic view of God. That is that God is in everything. So you see that tree over there? God's in that tree. You see that cow? God's in the cow. You know, God's in the table. You know, God's in me, God's in you. Just, just God's sort of manifested in everything. A sort of pantheistic uh, world uh, view. Uh, but the Stoics, they, they believed in sort of determinism. They believed everything was just determined by fate. And so there was no point really in pursuing uh, absence of pain because pain's just going to happen. There's no point in trying to avoid it. It's just a fact of life. And so the key to happiness in life is just to accept it. Deal with it. Don't worry about it. Just accept that life's going to be miserable at times and you're going to suffer, you know, and... Uh, and, and that's, how they, that's how they thought. Uh, and yes, it might be painful, but you just got to deal with it. Uh, and that's why sort of today we use the word stoic and refer it to, to a person who can endure pain or hardship without showing their feelings or emotions or complaining. Just somebody who's completely unemotional and detached uh, from the things uh, of life. So you had the Epicureans and you had the Stoics. The Epicureans, they were uh, sort of the key to happiness was seeking uh, pleasure uh, most notably the absence of things that would harm you, and the Stoics who just said, well, life is kind of a bit rubbish at times, you just got to deal with it and accept it, um, and then you'll be happy. Uh, but despite their kind of opposing viewpoints in a philosophical sense, one thing that they were agreed on in verse 18 was that they thought Paul was literally an idiot. Right? It says that they said, what does this babbler want to say? The word babbler, it's actually a weird word, um, uh, but, but it ba basically means somebody who hasn't got a clue what they're talking about, somebody who hasn't got an original idea in their head. They've just, they've just picked up all this random stuff and they're just blurting it out and they haven't got a clue what they're talking about. So, so that's what they thought uh, of Paul. And... Um, and why did they think that? Well, because the end of verse 18, because he preached to them Jesus uh, and the resurrection. Now, what's interesting here is that these are the intellectual elite. Um, and Paul comes to them. And you kind of think, well, Paul, you know, you've been talking to religious people. You know, you've been talking to, you know, the common man a lot. But now you're coming up against the, the intellectual powerhouses of the ancient world. So, Paul, what are you going to tell these people? Well, about Jesus and his resurrection, of course. The same thing that I told the religious people, the same thing that I told common man. It doesn't matter if they're the philosophers, the intellectual powerhouses of the day. They need to know about Jesus, his death on the cross for their sins and his resurrection and victory over sin uh, and death. Paul brought the same message to the people of Athens that he took everywhere Else. And it's a reminder to us that everybody is saved the same way. It doesn't matter if you're the most intellectual academic in the world or you're the most sort of ignorant person in the world. The way of salvation is exactly the same. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. We're all saved the same way. There is no difference. It is often said that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that is true. 
Because to get right with God, all humanity has to come the same way. They have to come through Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. But they thought that Paul was just an idiot and was spouting nonsense. But anyway, in verse 19, notice, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, Now may we know what this new doctrine of is of which you speak. For you are bringing some strange thing to our ears, therefore we want to know what things mean. They wanted further explanations. They wanted Paul to explain himself further. But notice in verse 21, not because they were seeking the truth, but because all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there, they spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear something new. And so when Paul came in talking about Jesus uh, and the resurrection, uh, was talking about God, he was presenting an entirely different view of the world, an entirely different view of God, an entirely different view of men, uh, an entirely different view of the world to anything that the Athenians had ever heard before. Uh, and they thought he was a bit of an idiot, really. But what they were more interested in was debating things that were new. And Paul was bringing a new idea. So Paul, you're right down our street. We think you're a bit of an idiot, but come on, tell us more because we want to discuss it with you. In other words, we want to use our incredible intellect to prove you wrong, basically. Uh, and so, according to verse 22, Paul then stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, now, the Areopagus is that rock right there. That's modern day. Now, the Areopagus, it's a, a combination of two Greek words. The first one is Ares, who is the Greek god of war. And the, the Pagos, or Pagos, I'll be corrected by someone here, uh, uh, means a hill or a rock. And so the word literally means uh, the... The, the rock or the hill of Ares, the Greek god, Ares. Now, the Greek god of war, Ares, uh, was taken into Roman mythology. Uh, the equivalent god was Mars. And so our common designation for the Areopagus is Mars Hill. It's the, the hill of the god of war. In Greek mythology, it was Ares. In Roman mythology, it was Mars. Uh, and so Mars Hill, it was located, it's located pretty much in the center of Athens, uh, it is just west uh, of the Acropolis where the Parthenon stands. And you'll see that's a view from Mars Hill up to the Acropolis uh, where the great temple of Athena uh, was, the, the Parthenon, or, and it's still uh, there today. And what's interesting is if you look at the modern day depiction, and you can't really see it very well in, in, in the light, uh, but there's the, 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 the Acropolis of the Parthenon, the great the statue of um, Athena, the patron of Athens, the goddess of wisdom. Uh, and this is Mars Hill down here. Uh, and that was the location of the Supreme Court of Athens. And there was this big open space where all the philosophers would gather to talk about philosophy, right in the shadow of the Parthenon, the temple uh, of Athena with the statue of Athena looking down. And that is where the philosophers took Paul uh, up the hill from the, uh, uh, from the marketplace, uh, from the Agora, up onto Mars Hill, the Areopagus, right in the shadow of the Parthenon, uh, asking Paul now before the most brilliant minds in Athens to explain to them why all of that is wrong. And that's exactly what Paul proceeds to do, beginning in verse 22. Because he said, and this is the fourth thing, incidentally, we've seen what Paul, um, what Paul saw, uh, the idolatry, what he felt, sort of grieved and angered in his spirit at the idolatry, what Paul did, preached Jesus in his resurrection. Now specifically we see what Paul said, beginning in verse 22. He said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, remember, the Greeks had a multitude of gods. 
And they were so uh, concerned that they would miss a God and that God would be angry with them for, refu for failing to worship him that they created altars to the unknown God. They couldn't create statues or temples, of course, because they didn't know anything about this God. But they had altars uh, to the unknown God on which they sacrificed to uh, appease the God that they didn't know anything about, uh, just in case there was a God that they didn't know anything about. Uh, and so Paul, having gone through Athens, having seen these altars to the unknown God, having seen all the idols and perceiving that they were very religious, begins his address by finding a point of commonality. Everything else he was about to say was going to be totally alien to them, completely contradicting their entire worldview. But he begins by saying, okay, well, you're religious, aren't you? Okay, well, that's a good start. I'm going to talk to you about religion. Uh, you've got an altar to the unknown God, haven't you? Okay, well, there is a God that you don't know anything about, and I'm going to tell you about that God. Now, there are some people who would suggest uh, here, because uh, it says, uh, Paul said, uh, the unknown God, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. There are some people who suggest that the Athenians were actually really worshipping God, they just didn't know anything about him. And they would extrapolate from that. You know, there are a lot of people, they don't know about Jesus, they don't know about the gospel, you know, but they're really worshipping God. And so God accepts their worship. Uh, but that's not at all what Paul is saying, quite the opposite. Paul is aggrieved by their idolatry. Their worship of the unknown God was idolatrous because they didn't know who that unknown God was. They had a complete false understanding uh, of God. Paul's emphasis here is not on their worship so much as it is on their ignorance. They are ignorant of things concerning God. And he finds a starting point from their own culture that they would understand. Okay, you recognize, you acknowledge that there's a God that you do not know and you do not understand. Okay, well, I'm telling you, there is a God who you do not know and you do not understand. And I'm going to tell you about him right now. And I'm going to completely blow your minds because everything I'm about to say is going to blow all your philosophy and your worldviews out of the water completely. And that's what he begins to do in verse 24 when he makes five statements about the true and the living God. In verse 24, the first thing he says is that God is the creator of the universe. Verse 24, he says, God, and notice singular, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. God who made the world and everything in it. That's the very first verse of the Bible. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, this uh, statement in itself would have uh, completely blown their minds because it contradicted everything that they thought uh, and understood concerning uh, God, the Epicureans, remember they were polytheistic, they had this idea of distant gods, you know, the earth came about as a result of random chance, gods were not involved uh, in, you know, the things of this world, or even the Stoics, this pantheistic view that everything is sort of God and all the rest of it, and Paul declares to them that God, there is one God, there's not many gods, God is both the personal creator of all things, and he is the personal lord of everything that he has made. That's what he said. God who made the world and everything in it since he is Lord of heaven and then he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Because if God is the personal creator of the universe and he is the Lord of all that he has created, it is ridiculous to reduce God to temples made uh, with hands. Which is what the Greeks had done with all their temples and their statues and everything all around the city it was ridiculous to think that the God who made the universe lives in the temples that have been made by man. Paul is saying God is the creator and you, we are all the creation. God doesn't dwell within the boundaries that we create. We dwell in the world that he has created. It's the first thing you need to understand. Your view of God is completely wrong. And this is the truth about God. There is one God, he is the creator of the heavens and the earth, and he is the Lord of all that he has created. The second truth concerning God is found in verse 25, and that is God is the sustainer of life. He's not only the creator of the universe, but he's the sustainer of life. 
Verse 25, Paul says, Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. So God is the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of the life that he has created. And so Paul's point, because God is the one who sustains our lives, it is ridiculous to suppose that we sustain God by our acts of worship or sacrifices or, or whatever else. God is the one who supplies our needs. We are not the ones who supply his needs. In other words, God doesn't need anything from us, but we need everything from him. We need him to even breathe and live. So the idea that somehow God is dependent upon us, you know, for food or for shelter or for a house, is a ridiculous reversal of roles. We depend on him. He doesn't depend on us. It's the second thing that he corrected. The third thing is found in verses 26 and 27, and that is God is the ruler of all the nations. Verse 26, and he has made from one blood, or literally from one man, speaking of Adam, Every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God has created all the peoples and the nations of the earth. And not only that, God, Paul says, is in charge of both the history of the nations and the geography of the nations. He is the one who determines their pre-appointed times as nations rise and as nations fall. And he is the one who determines the boundaries of their dwelling, whether nations expand or whether they're conquered. Now, that's not to say, of course, that God is responsible uh, for the bad and evil decisions that nations uh, can make. Uh, but it does mean that God ultimately is in sovereign control uh, of the world and the nations uh, of the world. And that's the, the lesson of the book of Daniel. And you read about Nebuchadnezzar, in, uh, the great king of Babylon, in Daniel chapter 4. And uh, God uh, brought Nebuchadnezzar down uh, to, to live like a wild beast to prove to Nebuchadnezzar that, that the Lord God of heaven rules in the kingdoms of men. God raises up kingdoms and he brings kingdoms down according to his uh, sovereign will. But notice there's a reason for it in verse 27. Why uh, does God rule in the, in the kingdoms of men? Well, according to verse 27, it's so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. That was the reason uh, that Nebuchadnezzar was uh, turned into a, effectively a wild animal. Uh, it is so that they might seek the Lord. God raises nations and brings them down so that they might seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him. That word grope uh, is the word used of a blind man sort of fumbling out like this. Blind, can't see anything. He's just sort of sticking out with his hand. And man is blind, of course, because of sin. And sin alienates people from God. Uh, even though man can sort of recognize that there's a God out there and he's sort of like doing this in the blind and not really getting anywhere. Uh, but the fact that man is sort of groping and not finding God is not God's fault because, Paul says, God is not far from us. As the Epicurean philosopher, they suppose God is too distant and you can't know him like many people today. You know, we don't really, can't really know God. God is not far from us. It is we that are far from God because of our sin. Uh, but if we seek after God with all our hearts, God will reveal himself to us. The Bible says we will find him if we're genuinely seeking him with all uh, of our hearts. Uh, and the reason, the end of verse 28, or verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being, which incidentally is a quotation from a 6th century Greek poet. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul is taking a quotation and he's applying the truth to the truth of God uh, there and saying, you know, God, God can be found by us because... God is sustaining us, really, for that very purpose. 
God is our creator, our sustainer, he's the ruler of nations, he's a personal God, he's active and interested in our lives, he wants to have a relationship with us, he wants to be found by us, he can be found, and he will be found if you seek him with all of your heart. Again, this is all completely contrary to everything that they'd ever heard before. Then, uh, verse 28, he says, Some of your own poets have said, We are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. And so the fourth truth about God is that God is the father of human beings. Uh, that quotation, we are his offspring, again, it's a quotation from a third century Stoic poet, uh, actually. And it's interesting that Paul quotes from uh, two pagan poets uh, here. And two pagan poets expressed in their writings a degree of truth, although they were misguided in how they applied that truth. But there is sort of general revelation of truth in the world that people can discover. Uh, apart from Christ, they'll apply it completely wrongly. Uh, but we see that it is true of God that in him we live and move and have our being. And it is true, Paul says, that we are the offspring of God. Now, that is in a physical sense, Paul is using it. God is the originator uh, of man or the creator uh, of man. We are his offspring in the physical sense. That The poet was actually referring to the Greek god Zeus when he used that term. Uh, Paul is taking, well, we are the offspring of God, but Zeus is a false god, not Zeus. I'm talking about the true and the living God here. God is our creator. Uh, and so God is referred referred to here as the father of humanity and in a creation sense that's true now significantly of course though it's not true in a redemption sense that god is the father of all humanity and we only enter into the family of god spiritually speaking if we are adopted into his family uh, through faith in jesus christ and so paul here is talking about being sort of physical offspring of god uh, not spiritual offspring of God, of which um, only those who uh, are children of God through faith in Christ, uh, that could be said of. Uh, but the reason he really quotes the two uh, poets is to expose the inconsistency in their own logic and their own understanding, because their own poets regarded human beings uh, as being created by God, That yet they thought in terms of the God being idols or things made of gold, silver, and stone by men. And how can things made of gold, silver, and stone by men be the creator of human beings? It doesn't make any sense. And so really is exposing a contradiction in their own uh, philosophy. Uh, and so, and, and, and that's, that's all idolatry doesn't really make sense. It's all illogical uh, when you think about it. And the final truth is that God is the judge of the world. And this is how he concludes in verses 30 and 31. Uh, truly these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And so Paul comes now back to the subject of ignorance. He started by saying, you're ignorant about God by your own admission. Uh, and he concludes by pointing out their ignorance uh, once again. The Athenians, they'd acknowledge their ignorance of God. Paul has been given evidence of the truth concerning God uh, and explaining that truth uh, to them. Uh, and now the big conclusion is that they are responsible. They are accountable before this God that Paul is telling them about. They may have been ignorant before, and God in his mercy had overlooked their ignorance in the sense that he hasn't uh, passed judgment on them yet. But now he is commanding them all to repent. He's commanding them all to repent. In other words, you're thinking about gods in terms of multiple gods and gods in temples and gods made with hands and idols. You need to change your mind. All your gods are wrong and false. Your whole way of thinking about the world is false. You need to start thinking rightly about God. God as the creator. God as the sustainer of life. God as the ruler of the nations. Uh, God as really the father of all mankind. And you are accountable 
uh, to him and you need to repent of your sins turn away from your false understandings of God and put your faith in the true and in the living God and the reason you need to do that verse 31 is because God has appointed a day upon which he will judge the world because of judgment there is a coming judgment not a popular thing to talk about these days but it is true there is a day when we will all stand before God and there will be a judgment. The judgment will be universal, according to verse 31. He will judge the world. No one will escape the judgment of God. The living, the dead, believers and unbelievers. The judgment for believers will be very different to that of unbelievers. Uh, all believers will be judged according to their works uh, and will enter into the presence of God for all eternity with rewards and crowns. You can read First uh, Corinthians chapter 3 and Second Corinthians chapter 4 and 5 about that. But all unbelievers will be judged according to their rejection of Jesus Christ as Lord uh, and Saviour. And so there's a judgment that is coming. And the truth is everybody apart from Christ is deserving of the judgment of God because of sin. And apart from God's mercy and forgiveness that is freely available to all if they repent of their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus... God's judgment is a certainty. It will be universal, it will be righteous, because he will judge in righteousness. There will be no miscarriages of justice on judgment day. God knows everything, he sees everything, he knows everything about everyone. All secrets will be revealed, nothing will be hidden. There will be no bad judgments. And it is certain, because God has appointed the day, and he has appointed the judge. We don't know when that day will be. It will be when Jesus Christ returns, but we know that Jesus Christ is the judge who has been appointed. Jesus himself said that the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son. And how do we know that is true? Uh, Paul said, because God has raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He is the one who has the victory over sin and death. He is the one who has the authority over sin and death. So he is the one who will judge uh, the righteous and the wicked. And so in summary, Paul gives the Athenians basically an entirely different worldview to anything that they'd ever heard before. God is a personal God. He is a monotheistic God. He's the creator of the universe, the sustainer of life. He's the ruler of nations. He's active in this world. He is the father of all humanity. And ultimately, he is the judge of the world. And all of this was necessary for Paul to completely deconstruct their false ideas about God. And all of that, incidentally, is all part of the gospel. It's all the necessary background and context to the truth uh, of the gospel. Because right at the end, in light of uh, correcting all their wrong views about God, he brings in Jesus and the resurrection. Now I've explained to you the truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about how everything works. Now I'm going to tell you the truth about Jesus and his resurrection. And sometimes, and I think increasingly today, that is really, really important because it's one thing to, to talk to somebody who has an understanding of God and an understanding of the Old Testament, but it's another thing to talk to somebody who has got completely different ideas. For example, if you talk to a Hindu and you tell them the gospel, they'll say, that's wonderful, that's great, I believe in Jesus. But they don't believe in Jesus unto salvation because they just believe Jesus is one of the many ten thousands of gods that they already believe in and they just add Jesus alongside everybody else. So you need, to const you need to do what Paul did with somebody like that. You know, there's not thousands of gods. There's one God who is the creator of heavens and earth. Sometimes we need to start at creation before we can get to the cross and before the cross will actually make sense uh, to people. Now, we always must get to the cross. We almost always must get to Jesus. But for some people, we have to do a little bit more work in getting there than we do uh, with others and so there are many people today who have really strange abstract concepts of God and we need to begin by correcting their misunderstandings about God and the world and God's sort of role in the world and sometimes that needs to as Paul did take us from creation all the way to God's judgment and then bring in the need for faith in Christ and him crucified faith in Christ which is the only right response to God our creator and is the only answer uh, to his coming judgment because Christ is the only way uh, of salvation. And so what happens in the end, verse 32, 
uh, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Probably the Epicureans, they rejected life out of death completely. And remember, they weren't interested in the truth. They were just interested in sort of discussing new things and having a, having a conversation. But they mocked Paul. This is ridiculous. Some were not sure, verse 32, because others um, uh, said, we will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from them. But there were some who joined him and believed. Only a few, two people are mentioned uh, and a few others there in verse 34. And after these things, Paul departed from Athens. He never went back. Uh, and he went over uh, to the city of Corinth, which is where we pick it up next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word uh, today. We thank you uh, for the truth and the power of the gospel. Uh, we thank you that you have not left us sort of groping around in this world, unable to uh, understand anything about you because you've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed, ourself, revealed yourself to us in creation. Your attributes are clearly seen so that man is without excuse. Uh, and Lord, I thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in a very personal way through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that the for the relationship that we have with you in and through uh, him. Uh, and Lord, and we pray, Lord, that you would use each and every one of us, uh, just as you used the Apostle Paul, uh, Lord, in a world that is becoming increasingly godless, that you would use us, Lord, uh, to correct people's misunderstandings about you. You'll use us to teach the people, uh, Lord, who have weird concepts about God, that there is one God, that he's the creator of all things, that he is the sustainer of life. That you would use us to teach uh, people, Lord, that the problems in this world are all the result of sin. And that's why Jesus came into this world. He came to pay the penalty for our sin. And one day Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. But he's going to establish his kingdom of righteousness on this earth. Lord, give us the wisdom that we need, Lord, to be effective witnesses uh, for you to the people of our city, we pray. Uh, we thank you and we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.